0: Good evening, everybody. This is Rich Duncan with Ink Heist, and tonight I'm joined by my co-host Shane Douglas Keene and Laurel Hightower. And tonight we're gonna to be speaking with author F. Paul Wilson, who's written more than 50 books, including the Repairman Jack series, um, and the Adversary series, and how are you do- the Adversary Cycle series, I'm sorry. And uh, so how are you doing tonight, Paul?
1: I'm doing great. Um it's Friday night and uh, tomorrow's the 4th and I'm looking forward to some burgers tomorrow. Yeah,
0: same here. Um we kind of uh we kind of kick things off, you know, I know that you've had quite the prolific career, but for somebody who maybe is a newbie to the genre, um we usually just have our guests kind of give like a short introduction of themselves and a little bit about, you know, their history as a writer.
1: Well, um, I started writing seven um, science fiction in the 70s. I really wanted to write horror fiction, but there was no market for it. I mean, unless you were Blatty or um, Hour 11. Uh, so my second love was science fiction. So I wrote science fiction for, mostly for analog. Um, then Stephen King opened up the the horror market, so I jumped right into that with The Keep, that was my first horror novel, and um, I'm a contrarian by nature, so, you know, everyone was doing small-town horror, The Shining, um, Salem's Lot, Carrie, that, you know, variations on that type of stuff, and I said, well, I'm going to go widescreen, and so, I did the keep and uh, I think it was a hit basically because there was nothing else like it on the market and um, no one was taking that big a view of horror and so uh, actually we sold it to the movies before we sold it to the, the publishers but um, so basically all through the all through the 80s I wrote horror I did one science fiction uh, that was uh, Town World. I tried to do one science fiction a decade uh, because, you know, that's another one of my loves is science fiction. And then in the 90s, um, horror died. It had that big implosion. And I said, well, you know, let me try a medical thriller. And so... I wrote the select and my agent took it to the Frankfurt book fair and there was a feeding frenzy on it. And that was my first seven figure advance. And um, which is very nice. Um, And so I wrote some medical thrillers until I I had a multi-book medical thriller contract and I just got tired of them really fast. And so... I said, well, you know, I had this idea for a high-tech thriller that's really great for my old character, Repairman Jack, who I didn't, you know, immediately everybody wanted me to do a series on Repairman Jack back in 84, and I, I refused. I, I didn't want to get trapped in, a, in a, a character series. But I said, this is perfect for him, so I'll bring him back for one book. So I did Legacies, and that really sold well, and the publisher said, do another and so I did Conspiracies, and then I was sort of hooked. And then I did like another 20 books of Repairman Jack, and my fear was realized. He took over my writing career. But it wasn't so bad, because I was able to do anything I wanted. As long as Repairman Jack was a hero, I could do a medical thriller, I could do a science fiction thing, I could do a haunted house novel I could do a conspiracy book it was really the answer to my prayers and um, it was the answer to the marketing department's prayers because I kept switching genres on them and now they had me in one genre Repairman Jack he made his own, own genre so um, but I didn't want to run him into the ground so back in I guess 2014 or so I ended the series. I've done one more book since then, but I may not do another. It's, um, so now I'm doing this and that and the other thing. This kind of thriller, a little science fiction, a little horror. you know. But that's me. I've always jumped genres. I'm, I'm still jumping genres.
2: I love the idea of that, of Repairman Jack being the genre that I've never, I yeah. mean, I've I've definitely, you know, read about writers feeling trapped by a certain series. Uh, Ian Rankin, you know, for one. And but just that's that's I've never heard of anyone doing that either. Just jumping genres, just using the character. That's that's a fantastic tactic.
1: And it just worked out. I didn't plan it. But, you know, the thing is, I could do any kind of thriller I wanted. I mean, I'm a thriller writer. I write science fiction thrillers I write horror thrillers and you know to me a thriller is a multi-viewpoint suspense somewhat mystery story um and where the reader knows more than the any of the characters he doesn't know everything but he knows more than any of the characters and so um I could do any kind of, you know, like the Haunted Air, it's a haunted house story. It's a ghost story. But, you know, it's Repairman Jack. So so the marketing department could re- market it as the next Repairman Jack book. And basically, I was just writing what I wanted with Repairman Jack as a hero. So it just worked out for everybody. Um, you know, I had a great time. And, you know, the marketing department really... The marketing department runs the publisher. Let's face it. Yeah, Absolutely. Uh, marketing and sales—they decide the title. You know, you can come up with a title and say, "Oh no, <laughs> we can't sell that." You no, know, I mean my uh, the the Void Protocol, which I think was my last thriller. Uh no, before that was before the Last Christmas. But the Void Protocol, my title was Nadani, which is. A, an Eastern European term for the talented. And the you know, sales department said, no, we can't sell that. And once they say that, the editorial says, you got to change it. And if you don't change it, we'll change it for you. Because, you know, you know by contract, um, they have the rights to, to, to market the book the way they want. So uh, it, be, it became the Void Protocol. It is really... Not a title I like at all. Um, but, you know, what are you going to do? So, so that's you know that, that's the tail that wags a dog. And so you, you, you sort of have to I, I'm terrible with 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 titles of books. I've actually put it up to my my readership on, on the website. And you know, I said, you know, it turned out to be Harbingers, but I had no title. And I put up a few things about the book. And uh, Lisa Krause, who's, who was one of the web, web uh, I, I call her webmistress, but that, that's kind of a weird name. But um, she came up with uh, Harbingers. And uh, some people thought it was Harbingers, but um, it's Harbingers. And uh, that was a great title. Oh, um, <laughs> When I did the uh, early years of Repairman Jack, um, my first, my, my title for the first book of the early years was um, Welcome to New York and now go home. And <laughs> everybody hated that title. <laughs> um, so my editor came up with why don't we do, it's all about New York City, so why don't we do city? You know, we do cold city. Dark City, Fear City, and um, okay, that's what we'll do, which weren't bad titles, they weren't bad titles at all, but I love, you know, Welcome to New York, Now Go Home, but, you know, because that was when Jack came to New York, and he did not really find that he was that welcome, so it fit, but, you know, what are you going to do? I find that title
3: <laughs> quite appealing, really. Yeah, up. same. same. <laughs> I might
1: yeah. still do a, a book with that title, but... Uh, I'll probably have to self-publish it, because...
3: I've always loved uh, the way you do, you've done with the Adversary Cycle and with Repairman Jack, where uh, not so much with the Adversary Cycle, but with the Repairman Jack books, you basically have, as you said, written books in a plethora of genres that just so happen to have Repairman Jack at their center, but it it gave you, like you say, the freedom to create all of these different stories and get it past the marketing department. Um, And I love that you've been able to put that kind of versatility into that character, and yet I have at times picked up a book, five or six books out of sequence, and it still reads to me like a perfectly readable standalone
1: story. Well, that was... um Pretty much the first ten books can be read out of order. Um, Harbingers is full of spoilers for the first ten books because a lot of stuff you thought didn't really matter you find out really matter. Yep. <laughs> um, so, at, but after that they sort of need to be read in sequence because one builds on the other and builds on the other. Because I'd already written Nightworld in 92. So, you know, I was building toward Night World because that's where everything ends. And so, once you pass Harbingers, if you read them out of order, they don't always make a, you know, you've still got questions. I mean, I've had readers who who've started with Nightworld and I say, How did you start with Nightworld? I said, Well, I read it and I loved it, but I had so many questions I had to go back and read the series. I said, Whoa, that's great. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had known it worked that way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah, um Full disclosure, like, I'm relatively new to your work. Uh, this one, Signals, that was the first one I had picked up, and that's kind of the reaction I had. Like, it read fine to me, and, um, you know, it made me want to go back and read all the other ones that I had missed, and, um, you know, kind of. The stuff that you hint at and there, the one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, you know, I know throughout your work, because you even kind of put this like as kind of like an afterward thing. It doesn't have to do with the story, but about in Signals, like the secret history of the world, you call it, and kind of how it ties, you know, a bulk of your work together. And I was just curious, you know, how that came about. And, you know, like, what's kind of like the nuts and bolts process? Like, how did you managed to weave like this mythology throughout so many books.
1: Yeah. Um, You look at it and you think I'm a lot smarter than I really am. Um, It's I wrote the keep, the tomb and the touch as standalone books. I had no, no conscious idea of linking them Uh, and then I got into a conversation with Tor and Ace and um, about doing a sequel to The Keep and so Ace sort of won the battle in, in giving me the bigger advance um, and since they already had my backlist I was leaning toward them anyway um, this is Ace Berkeley, Jove you know they had a billion imprints um, and so I started writing the sequel and I started with Reborn and, I, I, and it's one of those things where well I need a, a town where this could happen and I said well you know there was Monroe in the touch I'll take, I'll take that and then it went on and I said, geez, I can bring Glaken back because he never really died. And then I can, you know, there was, there was so many. I, I brought people back from the keep. I brought people back from the touch. I said, I'll bring him Repairman Jack, too. He, you know, why not? Why not involve him? And it was amazing to me how everything fit together. I had no plan for this. And either I'm one of the best retcon people in the business, or there had been something subconscious going on that I was subconsciously connecting all these things when I wrote the first three books and it all came out in the second three books. So, I mean, you know, the follow-up novel for the keep came out to be about a thousand pages. And, you know, nobody's going to print that unless you're Stephen King or something. Um, it would be a thousand pages in print, not necessarily a manuscript. I a mean, manuscript, God knows what it would be. Um, and so I divided it into three books. So it became Reborn, Reprisal, and Night World. And um, it's amazing how everything held together. I had actually created this whole. Secret history of the world. Then in 98, I brought back Repairman Jack, and, I, and he was already in it because he was in the tomb and night world. So all of a sudden I said, well, you know, a lot of stuff happened between the tomb and night world. Let me just link everything up. And everything, all, suddenly all things started to fall together. And any new stories I wrote, I made sure they fit into the secret history. And so... We're up now to, I mean, I've written 70 plus books, if you count the ones that are in the the pipeline, and an awful lot of them, millions and millions of words are are in the secret history. All typed with two fingers, by the way. (laughs) 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 That's how I type, too, so... <laughs> I was going to
2: say, I, I, could, I, no, I, I could, thought, could never get through typing. Wish I I a
1: you know, I, I never did, so it's, I'm a two-finger, maybe three-finger, I'll use the thumb on the space bar, but, you know, that's it. I can type okay, just
3: because I did uh, web development work, but, yeah, for... Decade, so I did everything I wrote on a yellow legal pad so when someone introduced a keyboard to me
1: it' was like what the hell do you want me to do with this <laughs> <laughs> well you know you know I started off an Olympia portable and then you know when I, I started making a little money I bought uh, an IBM Selectric and then and I think it was 81 I yeah 81 I got an advance a big advance from the keep in 80. And I I bought an Apple Two Plus because I was talking to Joe Haldeman at the World Fantasy Convention in um November in Boston in 1980. He said I'm I'm writing on a computer now. I said what 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 do you mean? He said yeah and I got this thing called a word processor. I said word processor that sounds wonderful. And so he gave me some you know some hints and so I, I went and bought an Apple Two Plus dual floppy drive and this tiny six inch monitor and that cost me $3,500 now that's $3,500 and $1,981 you know, God knows what that costs nowadays, it's probably $10,000 um, but I had Apple Writer 1 which had total wraparound it, it didn't. It didn't end the line on a word and a space and then go to the next line. It just ended the line and then went to the next one. Um, when it printed out on my Epson dot matrix, it, it printed out fine. But when you look at it on the screen, you know it would it would divide a word in the middle of the word and not a dash or anything. It was just like <clears throat> um, that was the way it was. But the thing was. I could go back and take a paragraph and move it here or move it there. I could I could backspace. I mean, you know, I kept kept whiteout in business before that. And so <laughs> once once I uh, switched to uh, digital, I think I think their stock must have died because of their sales. <laughs> I mean, I, <laughs> that was my favorite thing. But that was nineteen eighty one. And so <clears throat> I was I guess, an early adopter as far as that goes. But it was thanks to Joe Haldeman because I never even would have known about it if I hadn't spoken to him. So and then I went on and on and finally I switched over to IBM because in those days if you wanted to share a file, you had to print it out. You had to put it on a disc and give it to someone on the disk. And if they had a Mac, they were totally incompatible. Mac couldn't read IBM, IBM couldn't read Mac, and and so almost every and I had you know I had the the Apple which was the, the Mac format, and so everybody I knew was on IBM. So I finally switched over to IBM, so just so we could trade disks, um, and then you know then came. 90s, there was Genie, and all the science fiction writers were on Genie, and we would, uh, we could actually transfer files over the internet, which was totally amazing. Um, and we had we conversed by email, so I mean, uh, so I was really an early adopter all along, but um, so now it's you know, all this stuff is, is uh, paleolithic to everybody. But back then it was so cool. I mean, I can write a letter and hit send, and the and the guy gets it a couple of minutes later. I mean, just amazing, just amazing.
3: Yeah, I remember those days too. That that conversion was kind of borderline miraculous if you were living through it and were used to there being no such thing as cell phones and internet and computers and what have you but even what seemed groundbreaking to us then like you say there had its form of uh, or rather it was somewhat archaic compared to now people what you had to you had to use a disk and it had to be from the same kind of computer. what the hell are you talking about you know
1: but well, or, I did interactive scripting. And everything had to be if, we, if you said, OK, we're a lot of games are going online now, but we have to be compatible with 28K modems. Can you imagine 28K? <laughs> and, and the big thing was, all right, now we have to get pixels off the screen. So if you killed a monster, you had to uh, have some excuse for it to disappear, because if, if the corpse is lying there, it was taking up pixels. And you know, it's a, nobody even thinks of that anymore with the amount of memory we have these days. But you know, I mean, my my, my two floppy drives were, um, well, my Apple II was was uh, 48K RAM. Yeah. And I could have gone to 64, but God, who needs 64K? Yeah, it was overkill. Now, yeah. Now we're into gigabytes to terabytes.
3: So. <laughs> and they're usually not enough in most cases. Exactly. Oh, uh, good times. Not really, but it seemed like it at the time. Yes,
1: we're. A, you're a Stegosaurus. I'm a Tyrannosaurus. We're talking to each other. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'm aii I'm a legal assistant, and um, when I started taking over for one of the ones who is going to retire, I discovered that she had there are word count limits on certain briefs that you write, and she had one of the attorneys convinced that she sat there and manually counted them within the document. <laughs> and I, you know, she's like making the, all these gestures I'm like, no, I, no, there's like a there's a, no, it's a tool. It says it right there, and she's like, no, no. I'm like, oh my god, how many of your hours have you spent convincing people that this is something that still needs to be done? Hey, listen, back in the typewriter
1: days, they wanted a word count when you sent in the manuscript and you, you know, the, the rule of thumb was six words a line. You count the lines per page, multiplied it by the number of pages. That's what you put at the top of the manuscript. I mean, that was how we did it. And it was never that accurate. Um, but, and that was how you got paid. You got paid by the word. My was first sale Analog was. Hmm?
2: Oh, I was just going to. It I'm seems sorry? like it'd be so terrifying to mail that. You know, like you oh. just have this one copy.
1: Well, we had something called carbon paper. Have you ever uh, heard of it?
2: Yeah. <laughs> I have, yes. <yeah. laughs>
1: They could I, I some said of that the... to someone you know, I said, Do you have any carbon paper? And they looked at me like Did he what <laughs> No, you 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 actually I mean this is before Xerox. You yeah. could run off a copy. So well look, Henry Cutner back in the forties, he wrote the proud robot. And he had, the, the hero's name was Gallagher. Like a year later, he wrote a follow-up story, and he didn't have the Corbin. He thought the guy's name was Gallahue, <laughs> So he called him Gallahue in the second story. And somebody pointed this out and he said, well, well, his name is Gallagher Gallahue." <laughs> And so if you look at the proud robot stories um i know this because i I did an introduction to to one of the the collections of of his his robot stories um that's and then it goes through after that they're all the guy's name is gallagher gallagher and they called him gallagher um but you know that, that this was a common thing they didn't have a copy of of the old magazine and they considered this stuff disposable. They never thought it would be collected later. And no science fiction ever got into books in the in the 30s and 40s, never, never, ever. And so, you know, these were disposable stories and they never got copies of these these magazines. They just wrote the stuff and sent it off and, and you know, got paid the they had two cents a word and and that was it and two cents a word was the top rate you know i'm
2: just so. still i I just would be yeah I mean I know I know the carbon that but that's gosh I mean I've actually there are a few legal forms I have to use carbon for, and that's a major pain just really still yes it's it's crazy. It could just be because I'm in Kentucky, but there are <laughs> the, for a small piece of trivia, garnishment forms are still carbon. So, yeah. That's a lot of fun. But it means wow. I still know how to use a typewriter, so it's it's not a dead skill yet.
1: Wow, yeah. Oh, yeah. Or an impact printer or something. Wow. That's I, I thought it was I thought you couldn't even buy that stuff anymore.
2: The, uh, the court clerks have them in stock. It's,
3: you can still it buy it amazing. in art stores, too. Art
1: supply stores. You wanted that because a lot of times, not a lot of times, but sometimes your manuscript would come back with the ring of a coffee cup on the front page. And you'd have to retype the front page. And it was always nice to have a carbon or something that you could type it off of. Um, sometimes it got lost in the mail, so it was really, really handy to have that that carbon.
2: Now I'm just picturing being so infuriated because there's a coffee ring on the front of my manuscript. There's, there's just, for all kinds of uh, fun ways to get infuriated. It sounds like.
1: <laughs> well, you, at least you knew it was on his desk. <laughs>
2: this, well, that's a good point. <laughs>
0: so paul um you know we've had some guests where they've talked about you know kind of like when they develop their characters and kind of how you know over time you know with certain characters especially they'll kind of form like almost like a relationship. Like when we were talking to Josh Mallerman, he kind of said that about when he wrote Mallory for Bird Box. And I was kind of wondering if you had that same kind of experience when you were writing Repairman Jack. Like I know you said originally you didn't want him to become like a series, but as you've written him over the course of so many books, did you feel that kind of like connection to your character?
1: Well, you can't help it after that many books Um, and that was also one of the reasons I ended the series when I did because he's an important part of my writing life Um, my oeuvre as you say um, I didn't want to betray him by just doing one book after another for a paycheck um, I was a big fan of the Spencer series uh, by Robert Parker. And the first 10, 12 books are probably some of the best private eye fiction ever written. Um, but after that, he started repeating himself. And, you know, it got almost masturbatory. And it was just, I, I just sang, I was reading them, I was saying, I got this deja vu feeling. And I didn't want to do that to Jack. I wanted to go out on a high note. Um, I didn't want to run him into the ground. So in in that sense, that I felt a certain loyalty to him. Uh, yes, that was a relationship. Um, a lot of times I would, you know, I would get lost in the story and lose sight of certain things about him. And that was a great thing about my editor, um, David Hartwell, um, he'd be able to spot that stuff, and he would, you know, he would he would call me up and say, you know, Jack's been through this kind of thing before. He shouldn't feel so excited or or, or skeptical about it, you know. He's been through it, and I'd look at him and say, yeah, you're right. <laughs> I have to change that, um, because I'm a skeptic and I always react my own way. Uh, but Jack, you know, Jack has been. Uh, Exposed to so much of this crazy stuff in his life, that he shouldn't be surprised by too much. So I mean, those were valuable things. But the thing is, yes, um, I felt a certain loyalty to him that, you know, I wasn't going to exploit him just for some more money. Uh, I was just going to end it when I thought, you know, I'd reached the point where there wasn't that much more to say. So.
2: Well, and I like that, you know, I, I think I've seen you, uh, somebody was asking you about this the other day on Twitter and, and you just kind of mentioned it's, you know, it's not like you've closed the door on it totally. It's just that, you know, at the moment you don't feel like there's anything else to say. But if something does come up, you know, he's there. You can exactly. bring him back.
1: Exactly. Um, the, the idea for The Last Christmas had been sitting in my notes for years. And I couldn't find a way to make it work that made sense to me. And if it doesn't make sense to me, I can't make it make sense to you. And if it doesn't make sense to you, you're not going to buy into the story. So I just let it sit there. And then I did the Void Protocol, where I came up with this substance called malice. And I... I had a whole story about where it came from and everything. It was really cool. I was really happy with it. And then after I finished the Void Protocol, which I would call the Donnie, but you know, the marketing department changed that. Um, I said, This will make that story work. If I take this, because they're all in the same world. So if I take the Mellis from Void Protocol uh, and I put it into, uh this story, I can believe it. And so then I could sell it. And it really basically a lot of this weird fiction that we do, even science fiction, is selling it to the reader. You know if you can't sell it, they're just gonna I you know, I've closed books when when they 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 did something that just, you know, just was out of, you know, so out of character. Or I could say, I know where the story's going, but those characters would never do this. So the rest of the story's going to, you know, be crap to me. So I just closed the book and, and opened the next one. So, um, yeah. So I may never do another Repairman Jack novel. But um, I think I said in the post you read... I might start one next week if I get the right idea. But right now, I'm very happy with the way the series is.
2: And well, and also, I mean, you've you're working on something else that seems very, you know, so so signals is is the latest. And and this is the is that part of the night world? Is that was I connecting that correctly? <laughs>
1: Excuse me. Yes. Um yeah, Signals is a complicated um, origin story because it comes out of The Last Christmas. And The Last Christmas comes out of a panel at Marcon the year before where someone gave me this, you know, we, we, we were doing writer prompts and someone had this prompt. It was a painting of this young girl standing in the field and next to her, to me, it looks like her brother. Well, it looked like her sister to me, but it turned out it was her brother in the painting. But anyway, he's holding his ears and looking up at her like, and it, with a questioning look, and she's totally oblivious. And I'm saying, he can hear something that she can't hear. What's all, you know, what's that all about? Um,. And so I did three hundred words. we wrote you know three hundred words um, and and it was really disturbing to him that what he was hearing, and so I typed it up because I never throw anything away and I was writing the last Christmas, and this just sort of worked its way into it these signals from from out there um. I, I don't know where they come from, so I never explain it. And, and you know that, that's another thing in, in cosmic horror and stuff like that is don't explain too much. Don't give things names. Now the signals come. they're all over the world. They're electromagnetic waves that just hit the earth. They change frequencies for no reason. Why are they there? But I have somebody, somebody's monitoring them. And he doesn't even know why he's monitoring them, but they just interest him. And all of a sudden, you know, the frequencies start coming into sync. What does this mean? Why are they coming into sync? What will happen when they all get into sync? And so, you know, that, that type of stuff fascinates me. And so... I started building that into The Last Christmas. And then I wanted to explore I I couldn't work the kids into The Last Christmas. So I so I decided, well, you know, let me go in and tell their story elsewhere. And I told I started that with Signals. And Signals sort of tells their story. And that poor I still kept her a girl in the book even though she was a boy a little boy in the painting but he had long hair and he could have been a girl but anyway you know some awful things happened to that girl because of those signals and uh, it, it it just was a real return to horror for me um, true cosmic horror because you know I'm a big fan of cosmic horror and, and I think the secret to cosmic horror is you don't explain it. You only give so much of an explanation, but you'll leave so much in mystery because whatever's doing this is not comprehensible. And we as humans can't figure it out. We shouldn't even bother trying. Um, so that, that's one of my, you know, I, I, I love the Lovecraft mythos and all that, but one of my big gripes is that all these names for the gods, um, I just don't think they would have names. I think they are so unique, so powerful, so vast that they don't need names and they don't have names. And so any names anyone gives them should be something that the humans made up. But it's not their name. You can't call them down. You know, hello, Cthulhu. That's not my name. (laughs) (laughs) I agree,
3: though. (laughs) I agree wholeheartedly with that assessment. I don't have
1: a name. I'm too powerful to have a name. You know, that type of thing. So, um but I think in the twenties and thirties, maybe you had to do that. But I think now we've become uh, we've become too too comfortable with. I mean, you've got Cthulhu plush slippers, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you're a little too comfortable with this, aren't you? So, um. I want to avoid that, so I just I just leave them, you know, nameless entities. Some people call this the allies, some people call this the otherness, but those are really vague terms. They're not names. They're descriptors, really. And uh, so I leave it at that. So that's my contribution to cosmic horror. The, the F. Paul Wilson way, really. Yes. Um,
3: and, and I think The right way. I know a few different cosmic horror authors who approach it that way that, you know, that's like naming these gods, as you say, is kind of the same as claiming to have seen the face of God as a Christian. You know what I mean? It's like, no,
1: no, not likely. (laughs) You know, that you You know. know. And and there's also the, the, the fact that it's a very human thing to name them. Because when you name something, you can pigeonhole it, and when you can pigeonhole it, you get more comfortable with it. And when you get comfortable with it, you make plush slippers. Yep. <laughs> <No>. <laughs>
3: but if you don't, but if you don't name it, it's it's still a dreadful entity to you. It's, it's the still. unnameable. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I just, I feel like we have to work the plush slippers into the title here somewhere because.
0: (laughs) (laughs) plush slippers.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I thought that was such a, I thought that was such an interesting element of it, you know, and I I definitely Mm -hmm. don't want to give anything away on signals, but there, there was just so much in it because, um, that was different from what I'm used to seeing on that. And, um, I, I just really loved the character of Ellie and her, uh you know what gets gets to be a somewhat complicated relationship with her mother. I thought that was such a just an, a very human element that was in amidst all the rest of it
1: yeah um i, I worked a lot on that um, her mother is has no idea what's going on, but this is her daughter, and she loves her, and you know she's trying to <laughs> trying to support her um but poor Ellie, you know. But basically that, that besides the paint you know the painting with with the the kid holding his ears the other thing was a line i had in my um notebook was that you know and she came out of the coma but someone else was looking out of her eyes and that just you know sort of triggered the whole story i don't know where a lot of the rest of it came from um those little balls that you stack up on the window. Where the hell did I come up with that? I have no idea. And you know, sometimes I scare myself um, because who who thinks of that stuff? Um, but I'm glad I did. Uh, I really I really like the story and. Um, I was able to bring in uh, Harry Tate from the Ice Trilogy Uh, a lot of readers love her I also love her I love working with her a lot of readers also asked for whatever became of P. Frank Winslow the Pulp Writer and I said well here, here we go Now I'm going to tell you what happened to P. Frank um and you know, and P. Frank is sort of uh, you know a, a bit tongue in cheek, uh, but I had a lot of fun writing it, and I think people will have a lot of fun reading it. And it's not really you do not need to know the secret history to uh, make sense of the book, but I think if you know the secret history, you're gonna you're gonna get all all sorts of. Um, tweaks, as it were. Um, same with Wardenclyffe. Wardenclyffe takes place in 1903, but it's definitely very much a part of the the secret history. And there's all sorts of echoes you know, throughout what you've read in Repairman Jack and the Adversary Cycle. So I, I love doing that kind of stuff, because to me, it's all of a piece. I see it as this big mosaic and... There's a tile here and a tile there, and I just – I feel like I'm, I'll probably just keep on going adding tiles here and there, you know?
2: Yeah, because, I mean, it is – I I it just – it does work as a standalone, you know? I, I'm like, Rich, this is the first one that I've read – and um so it definitely you know the story carries it stands alone the characters stand alone i did get a feeling that harry was somebody who you know was probably brought in from another uh portion because she just seemed like she just breezed right in there with so much behind her already (laughs) i figured uh she had a lot more to her but yeah i mean
1: harry because she doesn't have a great filter (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah.
1: yeah she just sort of says what's on her mind and um just she does you know she's a no bullshit person and I introduced her in the God Gene and um, she was just supposed to be in the God Gene but I loved her so much I I brought her back for a for a scene in the um uh in the Void Protocol I keep wanting to call her by the original title uh but in the Boyd Protocol I brought her back for you know a couple of scenes in that um. But um, she's she my idea of, you know, the really independent woman who doesn't, you know, let anybody push her around. And she's totally self confident. She she knows she's really good at what she does, and don't mess with her. And um, you know, I love that type of character. And so, I had to bring her back. i'm you know, it just it's just one of those things I wish i could could I wish I could have come up with her earlier in the series and I could work with her more, but you know, I came up with her late you
2: know. <clears throat> well, it sounds like she has a future though no. possibly <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah
0: I had the same reaction that Paul just had. <laughs>
2: Well yeah, I mean it it's I, it seems like it it's open and and since she's somebody that is uh you know that you you feel strongly about and enjoy writing about um, you know maybe maybe she'll appear, you know.
1: Well, maybe in a, a a something that takes place earlier. <laughs> that that's <Sometimes>. <laughs> um but yeah, she she's a pisser. I, I, I just I just like I just love writing about women like that.
0: Uh. Yeah, I I really enjoyed her character as well. And um, you know that was kind of like my favorite thing was kind of like her like her dynamic and like her as a character. Like there was a lot of stuff I dug about the story. But her character kind of is what initially kind of grabbed me and made me want to like discover more. Um, but um, another aspect of Signals that I liked. Which I don't think is, you know, it kind of it mentions like some historical stuff, like some, you know, real world stuff that you could kind of tie in there. I don't want to get too much into it because, like I said, I'm new to the series, so I didn't want to spoil it. But I've always been a fan of, you know, horror books that kind of take like cool historical things and kind of, you know, weave them into the narrative. So like kind of fact meets fiction type things. And um, I know you had mentioned earlier that you were kind of interested in, like, the idea of the signals that you had created. And I was just wondering if that's always something you've been interested in. It's kind of like that weird, you know, paranormal, you know, parapsychology, parapsychology type stuff.
1: Um, I don't know about parapsychology, but it's... It's more the you know, the cosmic aspect of some radio operator somewhere, you know, in Antarctic or something. And he's just trying to get trying to get in touch with home base or something, you know. And all of a sudden he starts getting this weird signal. I mean, it was like you know what? That's why I love The Bass of Night. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. I love that movie. Well, I that's just saw kind, it. That's the kind of ambiance, you know, mm-hmm. I go for. Um, you know, what? wait a minute. What's this signal? Where's this coming from? And it was heard this time and it was heard that time in conjunction with this event and that event. Holy crap. You know, Correlation doesn't mean causation, but hey, wait a minute! Yeah, this is getting too frequent, and and so you start tracking it down and saying, and and that's when you can sort of tie in real world events with imagined events, and and you know when you can tie in the real world events, it gives a patina of reality. your story like well I know this really happened but did this other thing he talks about really happen too and when you get the reader questioning that and you get I call it the, the reader's inference engine if you can get the reader's inference engine revved up you got them sucked into the story they're actually participating because they are making. They're trying to make connections. They're, tr- they're making assumptions, and you—you caught them. I mean, and that's what really what I write for. I—I I, I write to sort of own you for a little while, and I can just sort of manipulate your your glands. You know, I can I can get your adrenaline flowing and I can maybe maybe squeeze a tear out of those tear ducts um, that's what I want to do I, 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 I just want to own you and get you into my story and make you participate and when you get out of it you say holy crap that was great why was it great because you participated and, and and so that's 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 the secret of the the actual history with the secret history. You meld them and you confuse them. And when you start confusing the secret history with the real history, then all of a sudden the reader doesn't know what's real and what's not real. So he's going to go with what you're presenting. And that's, you know, that's a great experience of reading a, a fiction. I mean, that's the promise of fiction. Take you somewhere that you cannot go on your own. You can't go here. You can't go there. Matter of fact, this place doesn't exist, but I'm going to take you there. And and to me, that's why I do it. I mean, because I want someone to do that to me. And people have done that to me in the past. And so I want to do it for other people. It's, it's just it's something that that drives me that's my driving force
3: and that kind of driving force is the kind of driving force that makes an author worth his salt though Um, is wanting to tell the story you want to read and actually being good at doing just that very thing you know you don't just you're not just throwing your words out there to make dollars off of them you want people to read them and get something out of them
1: they mean something to you I want to write something I want to read. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, I think that's, un- and fortunately for me, what I want to read is what a lot of other people have wanted to read. So I, I've sold a lot of books. You know, if what you want to read is not what other, pe- other people want to read, then you know, you're sort of out of luck. But good for you. You did what you wanted to do. Yeah,
3: uh, have, yeah have fun writing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, so let's
0: talk oh sorry go ahead Rich you first that's right. um, so Paul I just wanted to uh, touch on a character you had mentioned a little bit earlier and that's uh, P. Frank um, I, I, like I said I was kind of new to it but when I was reading it you know obviously the name kind of hints at that but I was kind of curious you know because I think you said he might have came into an earlier book but kind of like what was pre p frank for you because when i read it i i kind of found it humorous and i was like you know it's almost kind of like you were you know not necessarily putting yourself in there but maybe like a part of yourself in there like and it was kind of cool to see that like it might not be you necessarily but elements of yourself and maybe kind of toying with you know the idea of yourself as a writer
1: Oh, it was definitely talking um, fun at myself. And, you know, if you can't poke fun at yourself, you know, there's something wrong with you. It, you know, you, you can just take yourself too seriously. Um, P. Frank is sort of a, an, an exact, you know, because I'm F. Paul and the F. stands for Francis. So, I mean, and Winslow. Come on. It's pretty obvious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, obviously, I, I'm, I'm poking fun at myself. And, um, you know, and yes, I am that compulsive, and I, I, I do a certain number of words every day. Um, and it's just sort of a way of, of
2: you know,
1: hey – Yeah, you think you're this this best-selling author, but come down to earth—you're just a hack. You know, you're just a pulp writer, and um, that's what I do. I I mean, I write pulp fiction. I I don't have any airs about it, and um, and 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 P. Frank is that way. He uh, he knows who he is, and he he, he's totally uh, cool with it. I don't have five pseudonyms, but I've <laughs> had a few. And, um, it, 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 you know, I think it was in All the Rage. Was it All the Rage? I forget which book it was where he appeared. And it was just me poking fun at myself. And most readers got a real big kick out of it. Others thought, you know, oh, it's like an ego trip. But it really, it really wasn't, you know. Yeah. I certainly, if you read the character, you know I wasn't stroke. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was kind yeah. of a jerk, <laughs> and I, know I, I don't have my uh, you know, I have my jerky aspects, and so I just, you know, just—it was just fun to do. But the thing is, a lot of readers love the guy, and they kept saying, "What happened to him? Did he survive Night World?" And so I said, "Well, I'm going to show you." <laughs> and so I I put him in there Um, and again it's a type of it's one of the themes of of Signals is that passages that go you find a passage you think it's going to go someplace and it goes someplace totally other and um, that was a recurrent theme in it uh, and I love those kind of things. I, I love it. I used it in. I rewrote my first novel, Healer, it's coming out next year from Tor. It's called Duad. But in one of them, you know, they, they go into this this little building. And it's like you know, twenty feet on a side, and they go in, and it's like. <laughs> Huge, huge warehouses. It's like you know, hundreds and hundreds of feet on a side. And they go back out and they look at the outside and they say, "Wait a minute, you know, this wall only goes this far, and this wall only goes that far." Now we go back inside and it's this huge thing. And I I love that kind of stuff because it just, you know, it, it plays with physics and it plays with reality and our perception of it. And you know, the characters start to say, well, I thought everything was as it seemed to be, but really nothing is as it seems to be. And you, you get your characters off balance like that, and they're a lot more fun to deal with. Um, so, you know, I'm always playing with, 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 with stuff like that. And, and, and poor P. Frank, you know, <laughs> he finds his, you know, his floor is separated from the wall you know and he crawls down and, and wait a minute this isn't this isn't my world this is another world and then he he comes back and you know he can't get out so it's just one of those things you you take a character you, they're very comfortable in where they are you pu- and then you 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 pull the rug out from under them and then they have to deal with it so i mean you know to me that's fun it's not fun for the characters but it's fun <laughs> for me I think it's fun for the readers
0: yeah yeah it, it definitely was and uh kind of like you said with the whole p frank thing like that i didn't take it that way as like an eco trip i thought it was like a i thought it was a really fun thing for readers because you don't really see that too much and i was like that's kind of cool that you know he put a humorous you know He's kind of poking fun at himself, because you don't see that too often.
1: No, I don't think you do. Because, you know what? I know a lot of writers. And so many of them take themselves so seriously. And, <laughs> um, you know, come on. Yeah. Get off that, that high horse and come on down with the rest of us here. Um, I've never... I never. I I, I take my work seriously. I just don't take myself seriously. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm just another schmuck. And uh, you know, I'd be very happy to have a beer with you somewhere. Uh, I don't need to go to um, the, you know, the Four Seasons or wherever. Yeah, Um, I'm just happy to go to Julio's and sit among the dead plants. So.
3: So, I wanted to ask you before I forget, because I will forget, because I'm that way. Um, the uh, the um, and we won't keep you too much longer. I know it's getting late on that coast. I'm a West Coaster, so I've got all night. Um, <laughs> but uh, the young repairman Jack, the the teenage books. Um, I've always been curious about those. They saw. A, when you I first heard he's doing this, he being you, I thought, eh, that could be interesting and that could be just dreadful too, you know. But it didn't turn out to be that way. It actually turned out it seemed to me to be pretty successful. And I read the books. Um, what I and thought the same thing. There, they were very worthy books. It wasn't just a money grab on the part of Paul Wilson. Um, what moved you to Right to that audience.
1: Well, was, uh Mr. Sargent, the uh, the head of Macmillan, yeah. and he said around this memo that you know, he wanted a lot more synergy among the departments and all that kind of stuff. And I was, you know, you know, I'd seen a couple of young Indiana Jones things. And I was saying. Could do a young repairman, Jack. It'd be kind of interesting to see how he sort of developed his technique. Of, I mean, Jack's technique is let's you and him fight, and then I'll, you know, take what I want and and leave, and you won't even know you've been scammed. Um, so how could I do do that with a with a thirteen year old? Because I was writing. It was called YA then. Now it's called middle grade. But back then they called everything YA. Um, and so I proposed it, and Tom Doherty liked the idea, and he, he he sent me over to their Tortine, uh imprint, and and you know, so I I had a contract for three books. Um, and the, the interesting thing was to me. Because I was going to bring in lots of parts of the secret history. Um, Because they were going to go forward in his life. He doesn't know he's being manipulated. Um, Matter of fact, most of his life, he thought he was autonomous. But really, he's been manipulated. And and that's the big irony of the whole series. Um, But I introduced the character in the first one. I, and I made it take place in the, the New Jersey Pine Lands, which is near near where I live, and it's a really mysterious place. I mean, nobody has has ever seen the whole thing. It's 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 still it's a million acres of pine land, and right in the middle of the Northeast Corridor, and major arteries go around it, but nothing goes through it, and. I introduced this character, um, Louise, known as Weezy. And she's into conspiracy theories and everything. And, you know, she's very intelligent. I I just love intelligent girls' characters. And she's, you know, she's smarter than Jack. Um, And I fell in love with her. As a matter of fact, you know, she, she started trying to take over every scene where they were together. And I finally, at the end of the first book, I had to send her to Baltimore to get her off off stage because <laughs> I just loved her so much. But she stayed off through the the whole series. Um, and I, and I, I, as I said, I loved her so much I had to bring her back. I brought her back in... Uh, I'm going to bring her back in. One of the later books. Um... Not fatal error um the one before fatal error, I forget what it was um the one about the you know the the fall of the the trade towers and um ground zero ground zero I brought her back in ground zero and I kept her on through the dark at the end um, she's a great character, but she's she's you know got she's magic depressive um she has her ups and downs. She's a little unpredictable. Um, they call it bipolar now. Um, but in a sense, she uses that to really look into things she shouldn't be looking into. And then then people get get onto her, and they sort of come after her. And then Jack has you know, Jack gets involved. He doesn't know it's her. And then all of a sudden, he finds out it's his old, you know, childhood friend. Um, so those three books echo through the whole series. Um, and I I really had a ball with them because, you know, dealing with naive kids, 13 year old, you know, they're just going from eighth grade into high school, you know, it's a really important part in uh, time in their lives is really formative. And, um, <clears throat> I, I was able to, I think, give readers a sense of who he was going to become, even though he's not, you know, hiring out to do things or anything like that, but he will, you know, go out on a limb to help a friend in a certain way, and the anonymity is very important to him even then. So, um, I didn't make a lot of money from them. They they sold pretty well. The first one actually made the Voya top ten for um, the middle grades, and which is um, it's sort of like. I don't know, I don't know. They they rate you know YA books and stuff. So you know that was quite a a good thing. And I went around and I spoke to a lot of eighth graders, and that was just a joy. I mean they're they're bright. They ask great questions. And um, you know they would really read the books and think about them. That was just great. So I mean it was a great experience for me. I would. You know, I did three. I didn't think I wanted to push it any further. Um, so, you know, I left it at three. Sometimes, you know, three books, you know, it's sort of a magic. You know, the trilogy. Um, and if you, if you can do the middle book without it really sagging, because that's a lot of times middle books and trilogies sag, I mean, look at the two towers, you know, in in Tokyo. I mean, God, that's that's a chore (laughs) to read. Um, I I I just skimmed that whole book. Yeah, the first book was great, the third book was great, but the middle book, holy crap, you know, um, you know, get me through this so I can get to something good. Uh, So, but I I think I held up all three books, or all can all stand alone. And um, so I'm very happy with doing that.
2: I like, yeah, I, I like the exploration of that. Um, I just, I, I love that there's so much to the universe, too. And, uh, and you know, to the to the night world, too, because, you know, going back to that, like in, in looking at your bibliography, it seems like there's a lot that's related to that as well.
1: Well, everything ends at for me. Everything ends, and for the secret history, everything ends at Night World. I don't go beyond that. I won't go beyond that, um, because <clears throat> with the night, you know, with Night World, the secret history is no longer secret. Everybody in the world knows that you know what you've been seeing, you know, ain't what you're getting, and. um and also there's no reason for Jack after that, as far as I can see. I mean, he's been the ghost in the machine, and in Night world I, I totally break the machine. So you know he's just gonna be another another citizen uh, after that.
2: is there so do you have do you have plans for what you're working on next? Or is that something you you don't really want to talk about? Or
1: well, I did two books. Uh, you know, uh, I took a healer and turned it into two books. I, I changed in healer. It's far future science fiction. A um, a guy is invaded by an alien intelligence. So now he has two. Consciousness in his brain. You know, one is alien, and one is his own. Wow. And uh, they're in constant conversation and conflict very often. I moved it to the present, and the human is now a millennial female, and the alien still identifies as male. It was amazing what a difference that made in the dynamic of the conversations. Uh, it's so much more fun to have you know male and female talking to each other rather than male and male. Um, I absolutely loved it doing this. And so instead it, sort of Dalton and Pard, it's Daly and Pard. And Pard is sort of like Daly is a con woman. She's a 26-year-old con woman. She was raised like that, and that's the way she thinks. You know, hmm, how can I monetize this? Um, Tard is total intellectual in the sense that he has no hormones. I mean, he identifies as male, but, you know, he has no sexual inclinations and no... um, Mm, no sex drives or anything like that. So um, he's basically pure intellect, and it's sort of like imagine a, a, a con woman, like one of the con women from, uh, oh, oh, yeah, any any of the, uh, the 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 con women, the con men shows on TV. With uh, Sheldon from Big Bang in your head, constantly berating you and correcting (laughs) you. Uh, You're better than that. You're smarter than that. You shouldn't do that. And um, so the repartee was so much fun. Uh, One book became two books. And um, so that, the first one's coming out next year. Um, I've written a second one already. Um, since I have all this time now that I, with the COVID thing, back in 2002, after I wrote a novel, a Jack novel called Crisscross, which was very, very dark. I mean, really dark. <laughs> um, and after that, I just wanted like a palate cleanser. So I wrote a, a sort of a medical mystery romance, cozy um, and never sold it. Um, it just stayed in my hard drive. Now I had the time. I noticed it there, and I pulled it out, and I said, well, I could do another book on this. So um, I added a ghost story, and I, added, I did a second novel. So now I have the two of them I'm going to try to sell as a pair under a different name, uh, because it was so unlike anything you'd expect from me. Um, and I think, you know, my re- if my regular readers went into it thinking they're going to get my usual, they'd be very disappointed. So, I'll leave it up to the publisher how we do it, you know. Um, but the second one turned dark. <laughs> I don't know what it is with me. Um, the first one was light and fluffy and, you know, happy and <laughs> I mean, it was a murder mystery, but you know, it's more like a murder she wrote mystery than anything i usually do. The second one, really, i didn't intend it, but you know, i looked at it when i finally finished the first draft and i was saying, "holy crap, this really turned dark." I mean, so now i went <laughs> back to my my old self, you know, Well so, yeah, you
3: just needed to wash all that lightheartedness off and
1: well, yeah, yeah. first i needed <laughs> was to wash all the darkness off, but then now you know, <laughs> The darkness came back. So, but anyway, um, so that's what I've got on the plate now.
3: So. Interesting. <laughs> uh, I'll be looking for. So that'll be by.
1: like Who knows? Uh, I mean, I would like it to be by Nina Abbott. Ah, gotcha. I was thinking like. Be on the top shelf. <laughs>
3: there you go. Something <laughs> with <shelf>. that
1: A. <laughs> yes. I want. I'm tired of being down on the shelf where nobody with a bad back gets to see you. I want to be (laughs) bottom right.
3: (laughs) I never really thought about that, but I used to start on the bottom shelf, and now it's yeah. If I have to look at it, I go there. But fortunately, I know exactly where to find the F. Paul Wilson books, so it's not a not a search
1: oh, for that's me. good. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be sure to let you know what the Yeah, it may even do it. I, I wrote the Select called Colin Andrews and it got published in England as the foundation but it was F. Paul Wilson writing as Colin Andrews. Oh, they screwed you. <laughs> I don't. I don't know where they. You know. I don't know where they. You know. F. Paul Wilson in little letters, and then writing as Colin Andrews in big letters. So maybe they put it on the A's. I don't know.
3: <laughs> I can't yeah, win. one would hope so, but it sounds kind of like
0: you got lo- robbed there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, um, Paul, I. I was just curious. um, This is kind of like a very general, vague question, but if you could kind of go back to, you know, F. Paul Wilson at the start of his career, like you now go back and travel and talk to yourself as you're just starting out, what kind of things would you tell yourself? (sighs)
1: I don't know. Um, Things worked out pretty well. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I I mean, I've had tremendous luck. It's a 50-year career. I sold my first story 50 years ago in April. Um... I don't have any regrets. Uh, I really... I don't know what I would... want to do differently. Um, I'm glad I didn't start the Repairman Jacksons series in 84. Because um, it worked out. Because then, you know, I did The Touch and I did Black Wind. I mean, I've been able to to write what I want and get it published and sometimes it's been a struggle to get it published I mean I I, the fifth harmonic was like a new age thriller my agent had a hell of a time selling that because nobody knew how to market it um but I've pretty much written what I want to write and I I have no complaints I have no regrets um it's, it's rare for a writer to be able to say that, um, but I, I, I just, <laughs> I, you know, I, I would tell my old self to, you know, follow you, follow your heart, you know, and just, um, write the next book. Which is which was my philosophy all the way along, but I would I would reinforce it and say just write the next book, the next book that's ready, even if you know some people say yeah, my, my agent hated the tomb, he hated it, he wanted me to put it in a draw and go go write another book, um, yeah, you know, it wound up to be a, a 23 book series. You can't listen to people. Um, I mean, if it really goes against what you want to do, I mean, if you're on the fence, yes, yeah, sometimes you know, take take the advice uh, of someone who knows what they're doing. But if you really got your heart set on something, and I really believed in, in, in Jack in that book, um, I wasn't going to give it up. And so I don't care what my agent said. You know, let's sell it and. We went to the to William Morrow, who had published The Keep. They turned it down. They hated it. They hated it. And said, you know, my wife, and my agents keep saying, I said, well, no, no. Berkeley did the paperback of The Keep. Send them the tomb. Well, I called it Rikashi then. That's a whole other story. Um, and you know, they had sold so many copies of The Keep. They said, yeah, we'll take it. So we became a paperback original. Um, Stu Schiff for Whisper Press did a hardcover, a limited hardcover edition. But um, I, I never regretted doing that. Never. Um, so I would say, you know, follow your instincts and write the next book. Go with the next book that's ready. Rather, don't follow trends. Actually, and I wouldn't have to tell myself because I always buck the trends. As I said, you know, everybody's doing small town horror. I did the keep. Um, somebody wanted me to do a sword and sorcery story. Um, I did one called Demon Song where I said, let's see if we can just have the hero never draw his sword, even though it was sword and sorcery. Um, sold it. It became. And that's where Glagan and and, uh, Rossland first appeared. So, I mean, uh, and Jack, everyone was writing um, Jason Bourne type heroes when I started designing Jack. I said, let's go against that. No CIA, no Navy SEALs, no Green Berets, no Black Ops history, no connections to officialdom of any sort. And... He became a blue collar hero and everybody felt, you know, I could have a beer with this guy and it really worked only be all because I just went against the grain. So, you know, that's been my mantra, I guess, for my career is uh, if everybody's going this way, try going the other way. And I maybe I would be the only thing I would say was just reinforce that, you know, go with your instincts.
3: Um, and it seems to have paid off really, really well for you.
1: It has. I have no complaints.
3: Um, so I see it's getting, we're getting up there pretty late now. Um, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so do you have anything else that you desperately want to cover? I want to make sure we cover everything you wanted to cover tonight. And. Uh, no, I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm, I've yacked my head off here. So. Uh, mm-hmm. it's been amazing though, Paul. I could talk to yeah. you all night long. But I couldn't because I'm too fucking old and I have to rest at some point. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <isn't with> you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, but we are it's 10:30 here, you know. It's getting to my I need my uh, warm glass of milk and uh yeah. <laughs> uh
3: Rich and Laurel, you guys have anything else to add or to ask? Before we uh, let the gentleman go?
2: No, I'm, I'm good. Just wanted to say thank you so much for coming on and, and uh, for answering all our questions. I've, I really enjoyed getting to talk to you.
1: Well, it was a pleasure. You're nice people, and I had a good time.
3: We did too, very much yeah. so. We will have you back. All right. Take care then. All
2: right. All right. Thank you. Have a good night. All right.
3: Have a good have night. Good night. Oh, good night. Is somebody going to hang the fucking thing?